This morning we're looking at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 17. Friends, you'll be helped if you have this passage open, uh, perhaps on your lap, in front of you uh, the whole time. This is what we're going to be spending our time in this morning. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Mammoth Cave in central Kentucky is twice as big as the second biggest known cave system in the world. Explorers have mapped 412 miles of Mammoth Cave, and some estimate it's even 200 miles longer than that. Mammoth Cave is home to some amazing rock formations and unique creatures. So let's say it's not that far of a drive. You and your friends took a trip to investigate this world wonder. And you start off with a tour guide and the rest of your group, but you're feeling particularly adventurous this day. And you spot what looks like a cool alleyway off to the side. And so you ditch the group. You say, let's go check it out. So you just can't get enough. There are twists and turns. There are endless sights to see. But a little later on, the flashlight your group has been using goes out. There's not one speck of light. So you're sort of panicking. You start to scream. You start to yell. Maybe someone from the group can hear you. But no, an hour passes and you're trapped. So you decide you're going to just try it and take a few steps forward. But as would have it, your foot brushes past something and it makes a funny sound. So you reach down, you feel out for it and you pick it up and it turns out you found another flashlight and you turn it on. It even works. Now, at this point, there are a couple ways you could go wrong, aren't there? You could pick up this flashlight and you could keep it to yourself. You might think, well, my friends need to make their own path. Who am I to say that I can figure it out and they can't figure it out? Now, I wouldn't want to offend my friends by showing them what they should do. Let each of them do what what seems best to them. You wouldn't do that. That would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? Well, there's another way you could go wrong. You could pick up the flashlight and you could show it to your friends, but then you could just point the light back at yourself, right? You could say, look at me. Look how smart and wise I am. I'm the one who found the flashlight. Look, look at this abundance of wisdom right here. That would be ridiculous too, wouldn't it? Or you could find the flashlight in the cave. You could get your friends and you could turn it on and you can point it away from yourself, showing the way back to safety. 
Well, that brings us to 1 Peter. Peter has reminded us, uh, has reminded these rejected and oppressed Christians living in Asia Minor, he's reminded them who they are in Christ. He tells them that the world around them might hate them, but the God above them loves them. That they might be receiving rejection, but one day when Christ returns, they will receive honor. They might be outcasts in the world, but through Christ, they are God's citizens. They are God's treasured possessions, citizens of his kingdom. He reminds them that God has called them out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And he reminds them that God didn't do this so that they would hide this light from others. God didn't do this so that they would shine the light back on themselves. No, God did this so that they would show others the way they should go. They should show others that the way to life is the light of Christ. So the way they shine the light of Christ is through what they say. And today we'll see it's through how they live. Peter's been telling the Christians in Asia Minor how to live in response to having received God's grace. So far, Peter's instructions have mainly dealt with how they're to treat one another. Today, he begins to shift a little bit, and his instructions mainly deal with how they're to treat the world around them. So here's what he's saying today, 1 Peter 2, 11 to 17, if we could put just the main point in our own words. God has called you out of darkness so that your walk in the light would point others to him. God has called you out of darkness so that your walk in the light would point others to him. So Peter's introducing a new section of his letter in chapter two, verses 11 and 12. He's calling them to honorable conduct as they live in the world. And then he's gonna give several examples of what honorable conduct looks like. These examples will last really through the first part of chapter three. We'll look at just one of those examples today. So today we have for us, we have two points that reflect the two paragraphs of our passage. Point one is honorable conduct. Point two, an example of honorable conduct, honoring authorities. So remember throughout our time, the point that underlies both of them, that God has called you out of darkness so that your walk in the light would point others to him. So point one, honorable conduct. Take a look again at 1 Peter 2 verses 11 to 12. You take a look at these verses, we'll see what we're called to do, we'll see how we can do it, and we'll see why it's so important. In these verses, what we're called to do is pretty plain to see. You might spot more of a negative instruction as well as a more positive instruction. You might spot something we're to avoid and something we're to pursue. The negative instruction is to abstain from the passions of the flesh. The positive one is to keep your conducts among the Gentiles honorable. Peter gave a similar negative and positive instruction back at the beginning of chapter two, actually in the first two verses. Back there, he talked about how we treat one another. Again, here, he talks about how we treat the world around us. So on the one hand, what are we called to do? He gives a negative instruction, abstain from the passions of the flesh. This isn't the first time Peter has told us something like this. Back in chapter one, verse 14, he said, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Remember that word passions is another way to say desires or cravings. So to say here that these passions are of the flesh is to say these are the passions that are most natural to us. So for Peter, the passions of the flesh can be anything from being envious and slandering others, which we see in chapter 2, verse 1, or the passions of the flesh could be drunkenness and lust, which we see in chapter 4, verse 3. 
In the Bible as a whole, uh, passions of the flesh, the flesh is often pitted against the Holy Spirit. So our flesh naturally desires sin. The Spirit makes us desire God. Now, we won't belabor this point, just make, but let's just make a few observations about this negative instruction. Right? It's interesting if you notice that Peter begins with his desires, with our desires, before he talks about our actions. Desires before actions. I I bet you could imagine that he could have very well skipped verse 11. He could have gone straight to his instruction about conduct in verse 12. He could have just said something like this. Guys, be kind and respectable people in the world. And everybody would have nodded their heads. Says, of course, that's absolutely what we should be doing. But the thing is, that would be shortchanging the battle for how we live. Peter raises the stakes. He deepens the issue. He says, this isn't a game. He says, even for people who have been made new, even for people who've been born again, even for people who've received God's grace and believe in Jesus, even for them, they are in a constant battle for their soul. Christian, do you see in 1 Peter 2.11 that there are things warring against your soul? Now, you're not powerless in this battle. You you don't lack equipment for this battle. But friends, according to this verse, you shouldn't be passive in this battle either. This verse tells you that the battle for your conduct begins with the battle for your heart. That the battle for how you live begins with the battle for what you love. We talked about this uh, when we last mentioned this negative instruction at the beginning of chapter two. Uh, back then, I, a couple weeks ago, I told you about uh, what I called the nuclear stockpile in my kitchen, right? That is, is my own personal Willy Wonka chocolate factory that I got for Easter. Now, I'm sorry to report that this stockpile has depleted much since that time. It, it, but First Peter 2, 11 gets me to think, how I've heard that the craving for sugar is one of the hardest cravings to overcome. When you indulge it, the craving will only get stronger. But if you ever starve it, it, it like starve it for a couple weeks, the, the craving will weaken. So friends, here is the battle. Starve your craving for sin and feed your craving for Christ. What are we called to do? 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12, there's a negative instruction on the one hand in verse 11, and there's a positive instruction on the other hand in verse 12. Verse 12 says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So last week, we noticed that those who trust in Christ, just as a little bit of a housekeeping note, that those who trust in Christ are given the titles, the same titles given to Israel in the Old Testament. So here, those who are Gentiles are no longer those just who are non-Jewish people. Those who are Gentiles are now those who are non-Jesus-believing people. But here's why I think Peter gives this instruction in verse 12. Because the, the Christians he's writing to are being constantly made to feel like they don't belong. The Christians he's writing to are being constantly ridiculed. So if you're enduring that, you'll be tempted either to stop that by checking out to stop that by blending in or to stop that by snapping back. Now, Peter will address each one of those temptations in time, but here he urges us to live godly lives, even when we feel like outcasts. 
Not to check out, not to blend in, not to snap back, but to endure, to live godly lives. I think just make a couple observations about this. I find it interesting if you take the little bit wider of context and just look at the previous paragraph. I find it interesting that Peter's already told us that we are to proclaim. Verse 9, proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. In other words, Peter's already talked about what we say. He's already said, you are to speak the gospel. And now here in verse 12, he talks about how we live. We're not just to speak the gospel, we're to live the gospel as well. These two go hand in hand. Yeah, I think for a lot of Christians, they think they can have one, but not the other. So for some Christians, they might say something like this. Now, I, I, don't, really, I don't really talk about my faith with other people. I, I mainly try to just be a good example. I mainly just try to be a nice and a kind, respectful person. And hopefully people just notice that there's something different about me and then they'll ask me something. Well, my friend, that, that, that might be a, a well-intended pursuit, but no one will ever know the gospel just by your niceness. Other people will make the opposite error. Maybe they're not so shy to speak about Jesus. Maybe they're even vocal about it. They wear the t-shirts. They got the bumper stickers. They post everywhere on Facebook, but they're a nightmare to be around. They're rude and they're argumentative. Or they just don't stick out at all from the people around them. They tell the same crass jokes. They look at the same explicit websites. They go to the same parties and bars. They buy all the same stuff and trinkets. So sure, they might say that they go to church. They might say they believe in Jesus, but Jesus effectively makes no difference in their lives. So they wonder why their words so often fall on deaf ears. They forget that what they do is the strongest argument for what they say. Think about how, might, how this might work for you in your workplace or at your school. Maybe there you've been outed as a Christian, as one of those Bible-believing, Jesus-loving people. Maybe you've even had conversations about faith in Christ with those at your work or those at your school. If that's, if that's happened to you, isn't it the case that the people around you will now look at you with a little bit more scrutiny? will pay much more close attention to you and, and your behavior. Yeah, you should see, for me, when, people, when I tell someone that I'm a pastor and like their, their facial expression visibly changes right away. Now, maybe that's not fair, but I think people who react that way know something deep down. I think they know that if, Jesus, if we're really claiming that Jesus has brought us out of darkness and into light, they know that the biggest proof we have for that isn't just some historical argument about the truth of the Bible. It isn't just some compelling Christian movie. The biggest proof we have for that is for how we, how we live. If Jesus really has brought us out of darkness and into light, it only makes sense. It only follows that we would actually walk in the light. That we would actually live differently. So yes, friends, we need to speak the gospel. Faith comes by hearing, Romans chapter 10. People won't know it unless they hear it. But our honorable conduct is the biggest way we demonstrate that the gospel we say is actually true. That the gospel is actually God's power for salvation to everyone who believes. That God really does save and change people. How we live is the biggest argument for that. That's what we're called to do. 
But you look again at verses 11 and 12. It also tells us how we can do this and why we should do this. Now, I think the how comes at the very beginning. Peter urges them as sojourners and exiles. Now, again, sojourner is another way to say a foreigner or immigrant. To be a sojourner is to live in a place that's not your home. To be an exile is to be passing through a country as a temporary citizen, having no intention to make that your permanent residence. Christian, if you trust in Jesus, this is part of your identity. You are a sojourner and you are an exile. And this is how you can abstain from the passions of the flesh. Remembering this identity will help you keep your conduct pure. How does that work? Well, when you remember your identity as a sojourner in exile, well, that can recalibrate your expectations. Right? It, it, can, it can remind you that you might, while I might enjoy good gifts in the world, I don't expect to be accepted by the world. And I don't even expect to be satisfied by this world. Remembering your identity helps you think that way. When you remember your identity as a sojourner in exile, you realize I don't have to squeeze everything I can out of this life. When you remember your identity as a sojourner, as in an exile, you don't have to live and die off of people's approval. When you remember your identity as a sojourner and as an exile, you will be reminded that you have something better than what the world offers you You have a better citizenship. You have a better home. It works like this. Someone else pointed this out to me. Have you ever noticed how the people who are so often most passionate about their country aren't living in the country where they're from? Have you ever noticed that? You leave our our building, turn left, get the state road. You'll be in Ukrainian village. You'll see all the blue and yellow flags You'll see the Ukrainian butcher shops. You'll see the Ukrainian churches. You'll see the Ukrainian grocery stores. And even as our Ukrainian friends live with respect for the place that they live, they still want to preserve their identity. They want to remember their homeland. One author writes this, when you have everything stripped away as a sojourner and as an exile, then you cling to what makes you who you are. So Christian, do you cling to what makes you who you are? Do you remember and eagerly await for your better home? You know, I think if we don't, uh, it might be because of this. I've heard another pastor say this. It might be most of us have chosen heaven over hell. But few of us have chosen heaven over earth. But friends, this is what God's people have always done. They've always chosen heaven over earth. Read Hebrews 11 this afternoon. Talk it over with a friend. You'll see the example of Abraham. When Abraham's wife died, he calls himself a sojourner and an exile. Genesis 23. Abraham had no land to bury his wife. So how did he press on and go forward? Well, Abraham knew he had a better home awaiting him. Hebrews 11 verse 10 says, he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Friend, remembering your identity as a sojourner and as an exile can make all the difference in abstaining from the passions of your flesh 
and keeping your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. This is how you do it. But just real quickly, and this, on this point, verses 11 and 12 also talk about why we should do this. Why is it so important to abstain from the flesh and keep our conduct honorable? Look at verse 12. So that when they speak of you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So here's the situation for the Christians Peter's writing to. They have been outed as Christians and the people around them now know who they are. And the people around them now, they're calling them evildoers. They're calling these Christians bad people. I wonder, did you know that early Christians were called atheists? That's weird, isn't it? It's not that they didn't worship or believe in God. It's that they worshiped and believed in only one God. They wouldn't worship and believe in all the other gods in the city around them. Did you know that when early Christians, when when the people around them uh, saw their love for one another, when the people around them heard them call each other brothers and sisters, that the early Christians were accused of practicing incest? For the early Christians, did you know when the the people around them heard of what the Lord's Supper symbolizes, the the, uh, body and blood of Christ, the people around them called the early Christians cannibals? So Peter tells them to keep their conduct honorable among the people who are calling them these things. Why? Why is that so important? Well, in part, to prove those people wrong. I think God is glorified when charges against his people are nullified. You might have heard this before. The fourth century Roman emperor Julian hated Christians. And he complained about the increase of what he called atheism. Here's how he explained it. Atheism or Christianity has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar and that the godless Christians care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. Brothers and sisters at West Creek, what are we going to be known for in this community? What are you going to be known for in your neighborhood, at your workplace, among your friends? The days are coming and are now here when the world around you will be increasingly hostile and critical toward you if you openly profess Christ. So by God's grace, may our conduct be undeniably honorable. Softball example, maybe you've heard it before, but let's just say we get the criticism for being insincerely pro-life. Let's just say we get that. Well, let's glorify God and nullify the charge. Let's prove it wrong. Let's be the people who are on the front lines of helping women in crisis who are in pregnancy centers. Dan Schaefer was just telling me this week, he knows a guy who runs the Cleveland Pregnancy Center. Why don't you talk to him about volunteering there? Well, we prove the charge wrong. Let's be on the front lines of foster care and an adoption. This might not be for every person, but you know, we can support it in small ways. We can support families who do it. You could volunteer at Laura's home with the city mission. You can volunteer with safe families for children. You'll find a little blurb about that on our bulletin board. Let's prove the charge wrong. Let's be on the front lines of refugee and immigrant care. The Hope Center in Cleveland's always looking for volunteers. They do such great work. Let's be on the front lines for caring for the poor. Let's be on the front lines for caring for kids and families and broken homes. 
Let's glorify God and nullify the charge. May our conduct be undeniably honorable. Why? Why should we care about this? Well, I wonder if you look back at verse 12, did you notice that Peter says our good deeds should be visible to those around us? Did you notice that? He says that they may see your good deeds. I think this often goes against how you and I think as Christians. Author Elliot Clark reflects on this. He says this. He says, we think our gospel is more credible to others when they see us as mostly like them. We've come to believe that God is most glorified and people are most evangelized when the church is either hip and trendy or when the church is struggling and broken and weak. So the last thing we'd want is to portray ourselves as either holy or healthy and most certainly not better than anyone else. We want to be inwardly transformed without showing any outward change. Are you okay with looking different than the people around you? Because you should. Because if you don't, it's like what we said at the beginning. This is like having a flashlight and being afraid to shine it. Or as Jesus put it, this is like having a light but putting it under a basket. Your honorable conduct isn't meant to show that you're better than other people. Your honorable conduct is meant to show that Jesus is better than whatever other people are giving their lives to. Our visibly different conduct is meant to show that God really does save and change people. My brother and sister, this means that your holiness matters, not just for you. Your holiness matters for your neighbor. Your holiness reinforces your evangelism. Now, just to wrap up verse 12 real quick, it's not entirely clear what Peter means when he says people will see the good deeds of Christians and glorify God on the visitation, on the day of visitation. Surely there are times when our good deeds can verify the gospel we speak and God can use that to draw other people to Christ. Yes and amen. But here, the day of visitation is another way to say the day of judgment. So whether or not people accept Christ, when people stand before Christ, it will be obvious to everyone who Jesus really is. And one reason it will be obvious is because of those who believe in him, is because of our changed lives. Even for those who reject Christ, one day it will be obvious, their eyes will be opened, that God really has saved a people. So my friend, if you're not a Christian, if you're still following your own path, trusting in your own goodness, if you haven't turned from that to trust and follow Jesus as Savior and Lord, my friend, God will get glory in your life. God will prove to you that he saves and changes people. He will prove that he's better than whatever you're giving your life to right now. And either he'll prove that to you when you stand before him and are left out, or he'll prove that to you today when you come to him and are brought in. Well, in verses 13 to 17, Peter offers an example of honorable conduct. This is point two, honoring authorities. And this will be briefer. This example, if you read it, it seems kind of random, but I think you could trace Peter's logic if you look closely, right? Peter's been telling us to remember that we're sojourners and exiles, but the thing is, if we really are citizens of heaven, if God is our king, well, then do we really need to listen to the authorities on earth? Well, Peter joins Paul, who joins Jesus, and they say yes. We can break it down like we did in the first paragraph, Verses 13 to 17, we see what we're called to do. 
how we can do it and why it's so important. What are we called to do? Verse 13, be subject to every human institution. Literally, this means every human creature, but Peter specifies who he's talking about. He says, be subject to the king or the emperor and to those who represent the king in some way. Now, to be subject is another way to say to submit to or to obey. And this verb is in the middle voice, which might not mean anything to you, but it it really means that Peter is saying, this isn't something that you should be forced to do. This is something you should do yourself. This is something you shouldn't be coerced to do. This is something you should do voluntarily. We are to voluntarily subject ourselves to the king and his representatives. As Christians, our instinct shouldn't be to rebel. Our instincts should be to respect. They are the ones whose basic function it is to restrain evil and promote good. Again, by no means is Peter saying that this is what government always does. By no means is Peter saying that this is even what government always does well. Makes me think of a friend I've made recently from Iraq. Uh, I've gotten to know him a little bit. He lived in Iraq and Baghdad, actually, pre and post Saddam Hussein. From his perspective, uh, one thing he did say was that after Hussein, it was like there was no law in the land. And from his perspective, Hussein even restricted the persecution of Christians. So even for as complicated as it might be, and even for the worst of governments, to some degree, they still do something to restrain evil and promote good. What are we called to do? Well, verse 17, Peter gives a flurry of commands. Notice there. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Did you notice that the same verb is used for how we relate to people and for how we relate to the king? What does that tell you? It tells you that all people are made in the image of God and are worthy of honor, dignity, and respect. And it tells you that the emperor is a person worthy of the same thing that everyone else is worthy of. But did you notice, look back at verse 17, that a different verb is used for how we relate to God and how we relate to to the king. This is Peter's way of saying the king might be a person, but the king is not a God, like so many people treated him back then. God alone gets our worship. God alone gets our ultimate loyalty. So when respect for the emperor compromises loyalty to God, we choose God. Peter came to that same crossroads in the book of Acts, chapter 4, when authorities banned him from speaking of Jesus. And yet, even for one who was at one time commanded to go against God, Peter can look back and still say what he says here in 1 Peter 2. And think about this. The emperor who was likely in charge at at the time of this letter was a guy named Nero. Maybe you've heard of him. Nero is the guy who would begin the widespread official persecution of Christians. And if tradition is true, it gets even crazier than this. The emperor who Peter calls them to honor is the same emperor who ordered Peter to be killed. That's the guy he tells them to honor. You think our politics is bad? How could they do this? How can we do this? How can we be subject to authorities when there is still corruption and sin in our leaders? Well, there's a lot we could say, but let's just look at this passage. Look at verse 13. You can do this for the Lord's sake. Verse 16, you can do this because you're free and you don't use your freedom to live however you want. You use your freedom to to serve God. Christian, think about it this way. When you profess to believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, 
when you say something like that, you're not just making a statement about your own personal lifestyle. When you say Jesus is Lord, you're making a statement about a political reality. When you say Jesus is Lord, you, you keep in mind what Jesus said to Pilate before his death. That Pilate would have no authority unless it were given to him. No earthly authority has power apart from the ultimate authority's permission and plan. So you might say, you might hear that, you might listen, well, well, doesn't that just make us into doormats? Isn't that the same opiate that Karl Marx talked about that lulls us to sleep? By no means. Read the Bible. John the Baptist speaks out against authority. Jesus himself speaks out against authorities. Consider what we've read. We still do good deeds in the world. God uses those good deeds to influence people in the world. We're not saying that we should be okay with injustice. We're not saying we should be okay with corruption. What we're saying is that if Jesus has set you free from the penalty of your sin, if he has brought you into his kingdom by virtue of his sinless life and his sacrificial death, if he has done that, then he can use you in the world. But you are freed from the pressure of having to rule the world. You are freed from the pressure of having to change the world. That's what he does. That's what he'll do. I see so many people, so many people, even Christians, that they despair and they're angry and they're obsessed with politics. Their hopes and dreams rise and fall depending on who's in office. You can care about elections. You can care about politics and injustice. And you can still be able to hope and sleep at night. You can still be able to function even in an imperfect society. How? Because you know that Jesus is Lord. That he reigns. That he will return. That if you trust in him, you belong to him. Friend, that gives you freedom. And true freedom isn't to do what you want. True freedom is to do what's right. Why is it so important that we honor the authorities? Verse 15, Peter says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. It's almost the same reason he gave in the first paragraph. God is glorified when charges against his people are nullified. It's like Peter saying, guys, people are talking. Guys, people are talking who don't know any better. People are talking that we are rebels to the Roman government because we won't bow down and worship the emperor. Well, you might not bow down and worship the emperor, but when you prove to be respectful citizens and not rebels, you are going to prove those people wrong. Their charges won't stick when, you, when they see you caring for your neighbors. Their charges won't stick when they see you contributing to your community. Their charges won't stick when they see you following the laws of the land. So you see, by being humble and honorable citizens, people would remove a barrier to the gospel. By being humble and honorable citizens, the people would silence voices and open ears. Now I know our situation isn't exactly parallel, but I think we could still apply this. Once again, I am not saying that politics don't matter. I am not saying that there are issues and injustices that aren't worthy of, our, of being addressed and being discussed. But what I am saying is that if that's what we're most vocal about, if that's what we're always angry about, if that's what we're obsessed about, 
then that will close ears instead of open them. I want to state this humbly and pastorally. My Christian brother and sister, your obsession with politics will get in the way of your witness for the gospel. Christian, I want this to be clear for you. And if you're not a Christian, I want this to be even clearer for you. Whether or not you trust and follow Jesus Christ is more important than whether or not you have voted for the quote-unquote right candidate. What's on earth does matter, but eternity matters so much more. Your conduct, even how you talk about politics, can either close a conversation for the gospel or can keep that conversation open. Would you prioritize well? Through Christ, God has brought us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Yet we still live as sojourners and exiles in a dark world. So through what we say and through how we live, we shine the light. We don't keep the light hidden. We don't shine the light back on ourselves. We don't shine the light on distractions. We shine the light on the way that leads home. That way is Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the light, and the the life. We shine by making much of him. Friends, let's pray. Dear Lord, we need your grace for our salvation, but we need your grace for our sanctification. Lord, we're so easily distracted from what's most important, from what's most precious. We're so easily satisfied and long for the acceptance and the treasures of this fleeting world. Would we be satisfied and long for you? Would we treasure and prioritize your gospel? And through our conduct, through our speech, would you shine the light of Christ in a dark world? We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.